Part two of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Epistomalus. Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, compiled by Merle Johnson. Chapter one Buccaneers and Marooners of the Spanish Main continued. The Buccaneers became bolder and bolder. In fact, so daring were their crimes that the home governments, stirred at last by these outrageous barbarities, seriously undertook the suppression of the freebooters, lopping and trimming the main trunk until its members were scattered hither and thither, and it was thought that the organization was exterminated. But so far from being exterminated, the individual members were merely scattered north, south, east, and west each forming a nucleus around which gathered and clustered the very worst of the off-scouring of humanity. The result was that when the seventeenth century was fairly packed away with its lavender in the store-chest of the past, a score or more bands of freebooters were cruising along the Atlantic seaboard in armed vessels, each with a black flag with its skull and crossbones at the fore, and with a nondescript crew made up of the tags and remnants of civilized and semi-civilized humanity white, black, red, and yellow, known generally as marooners, swarming upon the decks below. Nor did these offshoots from the old buccaneer stem confine their depredations to the American seas alone. The East Indies and the African coast also witnessed their doings, and suffered from them, and even the Bay of Biscay had good cause to remember more than one visit from them. Worthy sprigs from so worthy a stem improved variously upon the parent methods, for while the buccaneers were content to prey upon the Spaniards alone, the marooners reaped the harvest from the commerce of all nations. So up and down the Atlantic seaboard they cruised, and for the fifty years that marooning was in the flower of its glory it was a sorrowful time for the coasters of New England, the Middle Provinces, and the Virginias, sailing to the West Indies with their cargoes of salt fish, grain, and tobacco. Trading became almost as dangerous as privateering, and sea captains were chosen as much for their knowledge of the flintlock and the cutlass as for their seamanship. As by far the largest part of the trading in American waters was conducted by these Yankee coasters, so by far the heaviest blows and those most keenly felt fell upon them. Bulletin after bulletin came to port with its doleful tale of this vessel burned, or that vessel scuttled, this one held by pirates for their own use, or that one stripped of its goods and sent into port as empty as an eggshell from which the yolk had been sucked. Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston suffered alike, and worthy shipowners had to leave off counting their losses upon their fingers and take to the slate to keep the dismal record. Maroon, to put ashore on a desert isle as a sailor, under pretense of having committed some great crime. Thus our good Noah Webster gives us the dry bones, the anatomy, upon which the imagination may construct a specimen to suit itself. It is thence that the marooners took their name, for marooning was one of their most effective instruments of punishment or revenge. If a pirate broke one of the many rules which governed the particular band to which he belonged, he was marooned. Did a captain defend his ship to such a degree as to be unpleasant to the pirates attacking it, he was marooned. Even the pirate captain himself, if he displeased his followers by the severity of his rule, 
was in danger of having the same punishment visited upon him which he had perhaps more than once visited upon another. The process of marooning was as simple as terrible. A suitable place was chosen, generally some desert isle as far removed as possible from the pathway of commerce, and the condemned man was rowed from the ship to the beach. Out he was bundled upon the sand spit, a gun, a half-dozen bullets, a few pinches of powder, and a bottle of water were chucked ashore after him, and away rode the boat's crew back to the ship, leaving the poor wretch alone to rave away his life in madness, or to sit sunken in his gloomy despair till death mercifully released him from torment. It rarely, if ever, happened that anything was known of him after having been marooned. A boat's crew from some vessel, sailing by chance that way, might perhaps find a few chalky bones bleaching upon the white sand in the garish glare of the sunlight, but that was all. And such were marooners. By far the largest number of pirate captains were Englishmen, for, from the days of good Queen Bess, English sea captains seemed to have a natural turn for any species of adventure that had a smack of piracy in it and from the great Admiral Drake of the old, old days, to the truculent Morgan of buccaneering times, the Englishman did the boldest and wickedest deeds, and wrought the most damage. First of all upon the list of pirates stands the bold Captain Avery, one of the institutors of marooning. Him we see but dimly, half-hidden by the glamouring mists of legends and traditions. Others who came afterward outstripped him far enough in their doings, but he stands preeminent as the first of marooners of whom actual history has been handed down to us of the present day. When the English, Dutch, and Spanish entered into an alliance to suppress buccaneering in the West Indies, certain worthies of Bristol, in Old England, fitted out two vessels to assist in this laudable project. For doubtless, Bristol trade suffered smartly from the Morgans and the Lolonoises of that old time. One of these vessels was named the Duke, of which a certain Captain Gibson was the commander, and Avery the mate. Away they sailed to the West Indies, and there Avery became impressed by the advantages offered by piracy, and by the amount of good things that were to be gained by very little striving. One night the captain, who was one of those fellows mightily addicted to punch, instead of going ashore to saturate himself with rum at the ordinary, had his drink in his cabin in private. While he lay snoring away the effects of his rum in the cabin, Avery and a few other conspirators heaved the anchor very leisurely, and sailed out of the harbor of Coruna, and through the midst of the allied fleet riding at anchor in the darkness. By and by, when the morning came, the captain was awakened by the pitching and tossing of the vessel, the rattle and clatter of the tackle overhead, and the noise of footsteps passing and repassing hither and thither across the deck. Perhaps he lay for a while turning the matter over and over in his muddled head, but he presently rang the bell, and Avery and another fellow answered the call. "'What's the matter?' bawls the captain from his berth. "'Nothing,' says Avery, coolly. "'Something's the matter with the ship,' says the captain. "'Does she drive? What weather is it?' "'Oh, no,' says Avery. "'We're at sea.' "'At sea?' "'Come, come,' says Avery. I'll tell you, you must know that I'm the captain of the ship now, and you must be pecking from this here cabin. 
We are bound to Madagascar to make all of our fortunes, and if you're a mind to ship for the cruise, why, we'll be glad to have you, if you will be sober and mind your own business. If not, there's a boat alongside, and I'll have you set ashore. The poor half-tipsy captain had no relish to go a-pirating under the command of his backsliding mate. So out of the ship he bundled, and away he rode with four or five of the crew who, like him, refused to join with their jolly shipmates. The rest of them sailed away to the East Indies to try their fortunes in those waters, for our Captain Avery was of a high spirit and had no mind to fritter away his time in the West Indies squeezed dry by Buccaneer Morgan and others of lesser note. No, he would make a bold stroke for it at once, and make or lose at a single cast. On his way he picked up a couple of like kind with himself, two sloops off Madagascar. With these he sailed away to the coast of India, and for a time his name was lost in the obscurity of uncertain history. But only for a time, for suddenly it flamed out in a blaze of glory. It was reported that a vessel belonging to the Great Mogul, laden with treasure and bearing the monarch's own daughter upon a holy pilgrimage to Mecca, they being Mohammedans, had fallen in with the pirates, and after a short resistance had been surrendered, with the damsel, her court, and all the diamonds, pearls, silk, silver, and gold aboard. It was rumored that the great mogul, raging at the insult offered to him through his own flesh and blood, had threatened to wipe out of existence the few English settlements scattered along the coast, whereat the Honorable East India Company was in a pretty state of fuss and feathers. Rumor, growing with the telling, has it that Avery is going to marry the Indian princess willy-nilly, and will turn Rajah and eschew piracy as indecent. As for the treasure itself, there was no end to the extent to which it grew as it passed from mouth to mouth. Cracking the nut of romance and exaggeration, we come to the kernel of the story, that Avery did fall in with an Indian vessel laden with great treasure, and possibly with the mogul's daughter, which he captured and thereby gained a vast prize. Having concluded that he had earned enough money by the trade he had undertaken, he determined to retire and live decently for the rest of his life upon what he already had. As a step toward this object, he set about cheating his Madagascar partners out of their share of what had been gained. He persuaded them to store all the treasure in his vessel, it being the largest of the three, and so, having it safely in hand, he altered the course of his ship one fine night, and when the morning came the Madagascar sloops found themselves floating upon a wide ocean without a farthing of the treasure for which they had fought so hard, and for which they might whistle for all the good it would do them. At first Avery had a great part of a mind to settle at Boston, in Massachusetts, and had that little town been one whit less bleak and forbidding, it might have had the honor of being the home of this famous man. As it was, he did not like the looks of it, so he sailed away to the eastward, to Ireland, where he settled himself at Biddeford, in hopes of an easy life of it for the rest of his days. Here he found himself the possessor of plentiful stock of jewels, such as pearls, diamonds, rubies, etc., but with hardly a score of honest farthings to jingle in his breeches pocket. He consulted with a certain merchant of Bristol concerning the disposal of the stones, a fellow not much more cleanly in his habits of honesty than Avery himself. This worthy undertook to act as Avery's broker. Off he marched with the jewels, and that was the last that the pirate saw of his Indian treasure. 
Perhaps the most famous of all the piratical names to American ears are those of Captain Robert Kidd and Captain Edward Teach, or Blackbeard. Nothing will be ventured in regard to Kidd at this time, nor in regard to the pros and cons as to whether he really was or was not a pirate, after all. For many years he was the very hero of heroes of piratical fame. There was hardly a creek or stream or point of land along our coast, hardly a convenient bit of good sandy beach, or hump of rock, or water-washed cave, where fabulous treasures were not said to have been hidden by this worthy marooner. Now we are assured that he never was a pirate, and never did bury any treasure, excepting a certain chest, which he was compelled to hide upon Gardiner's Island, and perhaps even it was mythical. So poor Kidd must be relegated to the dull ranks of simply respectable people, or semi-respectable people at best. But with Blackbeard it is different, for in him we have a real, ranting, raging, roaring pirate, per se, one who really did bury treasure, who made more than one captain walk the plank, and who committed more private murders than he could number on the fingers of both hands, one who fills, and will continue to fill, the place to which he has been assigned for generations, and who may be depended upon to hold his place in the confidence of others for generations to come. Captain Teach was a Bristol man born, and learned his trade on board of sundry privateers in the East Indies during the old French War, that of 1702, and a better apprenticeship could no man serve. At last, somewhere about the latter part of the year 1716, a privateering captain, one Benjamin Hornigold, raised him from the ranks and put him in command of a sloop, a lately captured prize, and Blackbeard's fortune was made. It was a very slight step, and but the change of a few letters, to convert privateer into pirate, and it was a very short time before Teach made that change. Not only did he make it himself, but he persuaded his old captain to join with him. And now fairly began the series of bold and lawless depredations which have made his name so justly famous, and which placed him among the very greatest of marooning freebooters. Our hero, says the old historian who sings of the arms and bravery of this great man, our hero assumed the cognomen of Blackbeard from that large quantity of hair which, like a frightful meteor, covered his whole face, and frightened America more than any comet that appeared there in a long time. He was accustomed to twist it with ribbons into small tails, after the manner of our Ramillies wig, and turn them about his ears. In time of action he wore a sling over his shoulders, with three brace of pistols, hanging in holsters like bandoliers. He stuck lighted matches under his hat, which appearing on each side of his face and his eyes, naturally looking fierce and wild, made him altogether such a figure that imagination cannot form an idea of a fury from hell to look more frightful. The night before the day of the action in which he was killed, he sat up drinking with some congenial company until broad daylight. One of them asked him if his poor young wife knew where his treasure was hidden. No, says Blackbeard. Nobody but the devil and I knows where it is, and the longest liver shall have all. As for that poor young wife of his, the life that he and his rum-crazy shipmates led her was too terrible to be told. For a time Blackbeard worked at his trade down on the Spanish main, gathering, in the few years he was there, a very neat little fortune in the booty captured from sundry vessels. But by and by he took it into his head to try his luck along the coast of the Carolinas. 
so off he sailed to the northward, with quite a respectable little fleet, consisting of his own vessel and two captured sloops. From that time he was actively engaged in the making of American history in his small way. He first appeared off the bar of Charleston Harbor, to the no small excitement of the worthy town of that ilk, and there he lay for five or six days blockading the port, and stopping incoming and outgoing vessels at his pleasure, so that, for the time, the commerce of the province was entirely paralyzed. All the vessels so stopped he held as prizes, and all the crews and passengers, among the latter of whom was more than one provincial worthy of the day, he retained as though they were prisoners of war. And it was a mightily awkward thing for the good folk of Charleston to behold day after day a black flag with its white skull and crossbones fluttering at the fore of the pirate captain's craft over across the level stretch of green salt marshes. And it was mightily unpleasant, too, to know that this or that prominent citizen was crowded down with the other prisoners under the hatches. One morning Captain Blackbeard finds that his stock of medicine is low. "'Cut,' he says. "'We'll turn no gray hairs for that.' So up he calls the bold Captain Richards, the commander of his consort, the Revenge Sloop, and bids him take Mr. Marks, one of the prisoners, and go up to Charleston and get the medicine. There was no task that suited our Captain Richards better than that. Up to the town he rode, as bold as brass. "'Look ye!' says he to the governor, rolling his quid of tobacco from one cheek to another. "'Look ye! We're after this and that, and if we don't get it, why, I'll tell you plain, we'll burn them bloody crafts of yours that we've took over yonder, and cut the weasand of every clodpole aboard of them!' There was no answering an argument of such force as this, and the worshipful governor and the good folk of Charleston knew very well that Blackbeard and his crew were the men to do as they promised. So Blackbeard got his medicine, and though it cost the colony two thousand dollars, it was worth that much to the town to be quit of him. They say that while Captain Richards was conducting his negotiations with the governor, his boat's crew were stumping around the streets of the town, having a glorious time of it, while the good folk glowered wrathfully at them, but dared ventured nothing in speech or act. Having gained a booty of between seven and eight thousand dollars from the prizes captured, the pirates sailed away from Charleston Harbor to the coast of North Carolina. And now Blackbeard, following the plan adopted by so many others of his kind, began to cudgel his brains for means to cheat his fellows out of their share of the booty. At Topsail Inlet he ran his own vessel aground, as though by accident. Hans, the captain of one of the consorts, pretending to come to his assistance, also grounded his sloop. Nothing now remained but, for those who were able, to get away in the other craft, which was all that was now left of the little fleet. This did Blackbeard with some forty of his favorites. The rest of the pirates were left on the sand spit to await the return of their companions, which never happened. As for Blackbeard and those who were with him, they were that much richer, for there were so many the fewer pockets to fill. But even yet there were too many to share the booty, in Blackbeard's opinion, and so he marooned a parcel more of them, some eighteen or twenty, upon a naked sandbank from which they were afterward mercifully rescued by another freebooter who chanced their way. A certain Major Stead Bonnet, of whom more will presently be said. 
About that time a royal proclamation had been issued offering pardon to all pirates in arms who had surrendered to the king's authority before a given date. So up goes Master Blackbeard to the governor of North Carolina, and makes his neck safe by surrendering to the proclamation, albeit he kept tight clutch upon what he had already gained. And now we find our bold Captain Blackbeard established in the good province of North Carolina, where he and his worship the governor struck up a vast deal of intimacy, as profitable as it was pleasant. There is something very pretty in the thought of the bold sea-rover giving up his adventurous life, excepting now and then an excursion against a trader or two in the neighboring sound when the need of money was pressing, settling quietly down into the routine of old colonial life with a young wife of sixteen at his side, who made the fourteenth that he had in various ports here and there in the world. Becoming tired of an inactive life, Blackbeard afterward resumed his piratical career. He cruised around in the rivers and inlets and sounds of North Carolina for a while, ruling the roost and with never a one to say him nay, until there was no bearing with such a pest any longer. So they sent a deputation up to the governor of Virginia, asking if he would be pleased to help them in their trouble. There were two men-of-war lying at Kickatan in the James River at the time. To them the governor of Virginia applies, and plucky Lieutenant Maynard of the Pearl was sent to Ocracoke Inlet to fight this pirate who ruled it down there so like the cock of a walk. There he found Blackbeard waiting for him, and as ready for a fight as ever the lieutenant himself could be. Fight they did, and while it lasted it was as pretty a piece of business of its kind as one could wish to see. Blackbeard drained a glass of grog, wishing the lieutenant luck in getting aboard of him, fired a broadside, blew some twenty of the lieutenant's men out of existence, and totally crippled one of his little sloops for the balance of the fight. After that, and under cover of the smoke, the pirate and his men boarded the other sloop, and then followed a fine old-fashioned hand-to-hand conflict betwixt him and the lieutenant. First they fired their pistols, and then they took to it with cutlasses, right, left, up and down, cut and slash, until the lieutenant's cutlass broke short off at the hilt. Then Blackbird would have finished him off handsomely, only up steps one of the lieutenant's men and fetches him a great slash over the neck, so that the lieutenant came off with no more hurt than a cut across the knuckles. At the very first discharge of their pistols Blackbeard had been shot through the body but he was not for giving up for that, not he. As said before, he was of the true roaring, raging breed of pirates, and stood up to it until he received twenty more cutlass cuts and five additional shots, and then fell dead while trying to fire off an empty pistol. After that the lieutenant cut off the pirate's head, and sailed away in triumph with the bloody trophy nailed to the bow of his battered sloop. Those of Blackbeard's men who were not killed were carried off to Virginia, and all of them tried and hanged but one or two, their names, no doubt, still standing in a row in the provincial records. But did Blackbeard really bury treasures, as tradition says, along the sandy shores he haunted? Master Clement Downing, midshipman aboard the Salisbury, wrote a book after his return from the cruise to Madagascar whether the Salisbury had been ordered, to put an end to the piracy with which those waters were infested. He says, At Guzerat I met with a Portuguese named Anthony de Sylvester. He came with two other Portuguese and two Dutchmen to take on in the Moors' service, as many Europeans do. 
This Anthony told me he had been among the pirates, and that he belonged to one of the sloops in Virginia when Blackbeard was taken. He informed me that if it should be my lot ever to go to York River or Maryland, near an island called Mulberry Island, provided we went on shore at the watering-place where the shipping used most commonly to ride, that there the pirates had buried considerable sums of money in great chests well clamped with iron plates. As to my part, I never was that way, nor much acquainted with any that ever used those parts. But I have made inquiry, and am informed that there is such a place as Mulberry Island. If any person who uses those parts should think it worth while to dig a little way at the upper end of a small cove, where it is convenient to land, he would soon find whether the information I had was well grounded. Fronting the landing-place are five trees, among which, he said, the money was hid. I cannot warrant the truth of this account. But if I was ever to go there, I should find some means or other to satisfy myself, as it could not be a great deal out of my way. If anybody should obtain the benefit of this account, if it please God that they ever come to England, tis hoped they will remember whence they had this information. Another worthy was Captain Edward Lowe, who learned his trade of sail-making at good old Boston Town and piracy at Honduras. No one stood higher in the trade than he, and no one mounted to more lofty altitudes of bloodthirsty and unscrupulous wickedness. Tis strange that so little has been written and sung of this man of might, for he was as worthy of story and song as was Blackbeard. It was under a Yankee captain that he made his first cruise, down to Honduras, for a cargo of logwood, which in those times was no better than stolen from the Spanish folk. One day, lying off the shore in the Gulf of Honduras, comes Master Lowe and the crew of the whale-boat rowing across from the beach where they had been all morning chopping logwood. "'What are you after?' says the captain, for they were coming back with nothing but themselves in the boat. "'We're after our dinner,' says Lowe, as the spokesman of the party. "'You'll have no dinner,' says the captain, "'till you fetch off another load.' "'Dinner or no dinner, we'll pay for it,' says Lowe. Wherewith he up with a musket, squinted along the barrel, and pulled the trigger. Luckily the gun hung fire, and the Yankee captain was spared to steal logwood a while longer. All the same, there was no place for Ned Lowe to make a longer stay, so off he and his messmates rowed in a whale-boat, captured a brig out at sea, and turned pirates. He presently fell in with the notorious Captain Lowther, a fellow after his own kidney, who put the finishing touches to his education and taught him what wickedness he did not already know. And so he became a master pirate, and a famous hand at his craft, and thereafter forever bore an inveterate hatred of all Yankees because of the dinner he had lost, and never failed to smite whatever one of them luck put within his reach. Once he fell in with a ship off South Carolina, the Amsterdam merchant, Captain Williamson commander a Yankee craft and a Yankee master. He slit the nose and cropped the ears of the captain, and then sailed merrily away, feeling the better for having marred a Yankee. New York and New England had more than one visit from this doughty captain, each of which visits they had good cause to remember, for he made them smart for it. Along in the year 1722, thirteen vessels were riding at anchor in front of the good town of Marblehead, into the harbor sailed a strange craft. Who is she? say the townsfolk, for the coming of a new vessel was no small matter in those days. 
Who the strangers were was not long a matter of doubt. Up goes the black flag and the skull and crossbones to the fore. "'Tis the bloody low,' say one and all, and straightway all was fluttering commotion, as in a duck-pond when a hawk pitches and strikes in the midst. It was a glorious thing for our captain, for here were thirteen Yankee crafts at one and the same time. So he took what he wanted, and then sailed away, and it was many a day before Marblehead forgot that visit. Some time after this he and his consort fell foul of an English sloop of war, the Greyhound, whereby they were so roughly handled that Lowe was glad enough to slip away, leaving his consort and her crew behind him, as a sop to the powers of law and order, and lucky for them if no worse fate awaited them than to walk the dreadful plank with a bandage around the blinded eyes and a rope around the elbows. So the consort was taken, and the crew tried and hanged in chains, and Lowe sailed off in as pretty a bit of rage as ever a pirate fell into. The end of this worthy is lost in the fogs of the past. Some say that he died of a yellow fever down in New Orleans. It was not at the end of a hempen cord, more's the pity. Here fittingly with our strictly American pirates should stand Major Stead Bonnet along with the rest. But in truth he was only a poor half-and-half -half fellow of his kind, and even after his hand was fairly turned to the business he had undertaken, a qualm of conscience would now and then come across him, and he would make vast promises to forswear his evil courses. However, he jogged along in his course of piracy snugly enough until he fell foul of the gallant Colonel Rhett off Charleston Harbor, whereupon his luck and his courage both were suddenly snuffed out with a puff of powder smoke and a good rattling broadside. Down came the Black Roger with its skull and crossbones from the fore, and Colonel Rhett had the glory of fetching back as pretty a cargo of scoundrels and cutthroats as the town ever saw. After the next assizes they were strung up, all in a row, evil apples ready for the roasting. Ned England was a fellow of different blood. Only he snapped his whip across the back of society over in the East Indies and along the hot shores of Hindustan. The name of Captain Howell Davis stands high among his fellows. He was the Ulysses of pirates, the beloved not only of Mercury, but of Minerva. He it was who hoodwinked the captain of a French ship of double the size and strength of his own, and fairly cheated him into the surrender of his craft without firing of a single pistol or the striking of a single blow. He it was who sailed boldly into the port of Gambia, on the coast of Guinea, and under the guns of the castle proclaiming himself as a merchant trading for slaves. The cheat was kept up until the fruit of mischief was ripe for the picking. Then, when the governor and the guards of the castle were lulled into entire security, and when Davis's band was scattered about wherever each man could do the most good, it was out pistol, up cutlass, and death of a finger moved. They tied the soldiers back to back, and the governor to his own armchair, then rifled wherever it pleased them. After that they sailed away, and though they had not made the fortune they had hoped to glean, it was a good snug round sum that they shared among them. Their courage growing high with success, they determined to attempt the island of Del Principe, a prosperous Portuguese settlement on the coast. The plan for taking the place was cleverly laid, and would have succeeded, only that a Portuguese negro among the pirate crew turned traitor and carried the news ashore to the governor of the fort. Accordingly, the next day, when Captain Davis came ashore, he found there a good strong guard drawn up as though to honor his coming, 
but after he and those with him were fairly out of their boat, and well away from the waterside, there was a sudden rattle of musketry, a cloud of smoke, and a dull groan or two. Only one man ran out from under that pungent cloud, jumped into the boat, and rowed away, and when it lifted, there lay Captain Davis and his companions all of a heap, like a pile of old clothes. Captain Bartholomew Roberts was the particular and especial pupil of Davis, and when that worthy met his death so suddenly and so unexpectedly in the unfortunate manner above narrated, he was chosen unanimously as the captain of the fleet, and he was a worthy pupil of a worthy master. Many were the poor fluttering merchant ducks that this sea-hawk swooped upon and struck, and cleanly and cleverly were they plucked before his savage clutch loosened its hold upon them. He made a gallant figure, says the old narrator, being dressed in a rich crimson waistcoat and breeches and red feather in his hat, a gold chain around his neck, with a diamond cross hanging to it, a sword in his hand, and two pair of pistols hanging at the end of a silk sling flung over his shoulders according to the fashion of the pirates. Thus he appeared in the last engagement which he fought, that with the Swallow, a royal sloop of war. A gallant fight they made of it, those bulldog pirates, for, finding themselves caught in a trap betwixt the man-of-war and the shore, they determined to bear down upon the king's vessel, fire a slapping broadside into her, and then try to get away, trusting to luck in the doing, and hoping that their enemy might be crippled by their fire. Captain Roberts himself was the first to fall at the return fire of the swallow. A grape-shot struck him in the neck, and he fell forward across the gun near to which he was standing at the time. A certain fellow named Stevenson, who was at the helm, saw him fall, and thought he was wounded. At the lifting of the arm the body rolled over upon the deck, and the man saw that the captain was dead. Whereupon, says the old history, he, Stevenson, gushed into tears, and wished that the next shot might be his portion. After their captain's death the pirate crew had no stomach for more fighting. The black Roger was struck, and one and all surrendered to justice and the gallows. Such is a brief and bald account of the most famous of these pirates. But they are only a few of a long list of notables, such as Captain Martell, Captain Charles Vane, who led the gallant Colonel Rhett of South Carolina, such a wild goose chase in and out among the sluggish creeks and inlets along the coast, Captain John Rackham, and Captain Anstice, Captain Worley, and Evans, and Phillips, and others, a score or more of wild fellows whose very names made ship captains tremble in their shoes in those good old times. And such is that black chapter of history of the past, an evil chapter, lurid with cruelty and suffering, stained with blood and smoke. Yet it is a written chapter, and it must be read. He who chooses may read betwixt the lines of history this great truth. Evil itself is an instrument toward the shaping of good. Therefore the history of evil, as well as the history of good, should be read, considered, and digested. End of chapter 1 of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates End of part 2 of this recording Recorded by Epistomolus, epcomm slash school